Well, this morning we're going to continue looking at 1 Corinthians 7. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. We're kind of doing a series on singles in the church. And since the last three weeks, we've talked primarily about problems facing singles, especially immorality and uh, just what the scriptures say about how to avoid immorality, kind of a negative approach, don't do this. Um, I thought it would be good to just also include um, the positive side this morning and see what God does want us to do in this area of marital relations. The world doesn't really know what to make of Christians and their view of sexuality. It, it, it kind of, um, they're, they're confused about it, mostly because Hollywood often uh, portrays Christians as, as not really uh, enjoying sexual pleasure, that, that those things are bad and those things are evil. God hates immorality and sinners go to hell is what they hear, but they don't really hear the good part. And part of the reason is is they don't want to hear the good part because they want to justify their rejection of God and the scriptures. They create a straw man. A straw man is a certain kind of argument where if you want to reject somebody's view, then you create a very weak view that they don't hold, but you pretend they do hold it. You create a straw man, then you light it on fire and say, see it burn up. It's not any good. And this is what they do. They they look at Christians and say, well, Christians don't believe that any um, uh, sort of intimacy is is good in any context. They're totally against it. Therefore, it's so ridiculous. It's so absurd. Light it on fire. And so we'll just do our own thing. They distort the truth and then attack the distortion as an absurdity in order to justify their immoral lifestyle. And their minds... Uh, being morally pure, saving oneself for marriage is kind of a monastic, extreme idea that uh, should be rejected. And of course, the Puritans have been and still are being attacked, though they're not even around to defend themselves. Um, they're being attacked for a view no Puritan ever held. This straw man is that Puritans believe that husbands and wives are only to come together for the purpose of having children, and that's all. The Puritans, as well as Christians in every age, have been against ungodly expressions of intimacy, no doubt. I mean, any you just read any work of any solid Christian, they're against immorality. You say, well, why are they against immorality? Because God's against it. I mean, the scriptures are full of promises that it brings the wrath of God, that the immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. So because they love people, they're warning them. Secondly, Christians have always been against forced celibacy. That is telling somebody that singleness is more godly and more holy or that you should be married, but you should abstain from all physical intimacy because um, it's some sort of at a higher plane of sanctification. Of course, they would be against that because that's not what the scriptures teach. As a matter of fact, they teach quite the opposite. For instance, Paul in First Timothy chapter four, verses one through three says this, that the spirit explicitly says that in the latter time, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons 
By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own consciences with a branding iron. And then the first doctrine of demon that he mentions, verse 3, is men who forbid marriage. It's a doctrine of demons. It's not a holier state to be single. And of course, this is illustrated very thoroughly in the Roman Catholic Church where men and women have made vows of celibacy thinking it will put them on a higher spiritual plane and have been brought together in groups and engaged in some horrendous acts of immorality. They've found monasteries where entire wells have been filled up with the skeletons of babies who were born and pitched in there. And of course... Christians have always been against the improper use of intimacy, even within marriage, of husbands and wives treating each other like prostitutes, of gratifying their own self and yet not serving serving the other person for their good and the glory of God. So yes, they're against all these ungodly expressions because God is against all these ungodly expressions and that is what it means to be a Christian. But... Do not believe that God is against this altogether. One of the most notorious women um, in history who is often put forth as a representative of the Puritans, though she didn't live until 200 years after them, and a representative of Christian thought is Mrs. Ruth Smithers, who is is the wife of Methodist minister Reverend L.D. Smithers, who wrote an article in the Madison Institute newsletter, the fall issue, 1894, entitled Instruction and Advice for a Young Bride. Ms. Smithers counsels, quote, To the sensitive young woman who has had the benefits of proper upbringing, the wedding day is, ironically, both the happiest and most terrifying day of her life. On the positive side, there is the wedding itself in which the bride is the central attraction in the beautiful and inspiring ceremony symbolizing her triumph in securing a male to provide for all her needs for the rest of her life. (laughs) On the negative side, there is the wedding night during which the bride must pay the piper, so to speak, by facing for the first time the terrible experience of marital intimacy. At this point, dear reader, let me concede a shocking truth. Some young women actually anticipate the wedding night ordeal with curiosity and pleasure. Beware of such an attitude. A selfish and sensual husband can easily take advantage of such a bride. One cardinal rule of marriage should never be forgotten. Give little, give seldom, and above all, give grudgingly. Miss Smithers then goes on to describe God's blessing as a terror, as revolting, and counsels young brides to feign illness, feign sleepiness, and headaches, (laughs) as these, she says, are a wife's best friend. She also encourages young brides to make themselves odious to their husbands by arguing, nagging, and scolding, and bickering so that their husbands will leave them alone. And of course, somebody who is a minister's wife who writes something like this, the world sees this, and this is Christianity. This is the doctrines of demons, is what that is. And it's people like Mrs. Smithers that have given Gentiles occasion to blaspheme what God has created to be good. 
Therefore, it is necessary to just come out and state the truth about what God says about intimacy and marriage and about the relationships between a husband and wife so that we know the truth and we know that it's a good thing and that God is all for it. So we pick up where we left off last week. We've looked at reasons to abstain from immorality from 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20, and also from 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 and 2. Paul tells men to not physically touch a woman in an essential way so that they don't ignite themselves into fires of passion and be drawn into immorality. Second, Paul instructs those who have strong, passionate desires to get married. Because that is the God-ordained sphere where people are to enjoy the desires that God has given them to be enjoyed in marriage. And it's clear that some in Corinth had come to believe that the act of marriage was, was unholy or that abstinence was more holy, as is often the case where there's false teaching. And Paul is answering questions such as, what if one partner is willing and another is not? Or is it okay to deny your, your, your partner attention physically for any reason at all? And so this leads Paul into the whole discussion of marriage. He's still talking about immorality and cures for immorality. And now he's talking about cures for immorality within marriage. He stated that marriage is part of the cure, but it's only part of the cure if God's plan is followed. If it's not followed, then it's not the cure or protection at all. So please look in your Bibles. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 just so we have a little bit more of the context. And then we'll get into the text. Paul says this in verse 1, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourself to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So we've already noticed that... In verses 1 and 2, um, Paul gives a couple more reasons uh, to abstain from immorality and now or ways to abstain from immorality. And now he is going to give some regulations between husbands and wives in the context of marriage so that immorality can be avoided, so they can be blessed, so God can be glorified. The first is this, fulfill your marital obligations. Having stated that marriage is a protection against immorality, Because it is a holy place to satisfy the God-given desires he's placed within us. Paul says this in verse 3. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The New King James Version translated uh, that they must render affection due. And the English Standard Version translated they must give conjugal rights. The word fulfill is a compound word. It's the word Give with the word from attached to it. To give from oneself to another person. It is to pay a debt, uh, to pay a duty, to serve, to give to somebody else that which is owed them. And here, of course, is talking about the continual debt that husbands and wives have towards each other. It's actually a present active imperative which requires ongoing obedience. When you enter into marriage, you are agreeing to ongoing obedience to serve your spouse. The word translated duty 
or conjugal rights, as the ESV has it, is that which is owed to another, an obligation or a duty. So really the word fulfill and the word duty are pretty much the same word. They're two different words in the Greek, but they have the same meaning. It's like pay your debt, pay your debt. Pay your obligation, meet your obligation. Give what is due. In the New Testament, it's used in a lot of places to talk about, you know, that our responsibility to be thankful to God, our responsibility to be godly parents, our responsibility to give to others uh, sacrificially, our responsibility to show hospitality, etc. These are things we are, have to give because we're Christians. They're, they're, they're new us. Well, in marriage, um, just as Christians have to do general things, these are specific things, these, uh, physical obligations we have to meet each other's physical desires not as mrs smithers counsel but to fill our duty so that we can be blessed in marriage and so god can be glorified so if you are a wife you need to make sure that you're not grudgingly following the counsel of mrs smithers that you're not using your self to punish to inflict pain upon deprive your husband because you have that ability husbands do not be lazy in your service to your wife don't treat your wife as a mere means to gratify your lust but serve her serve her find out how to serve her many husband has so shamefully treated his wife that her love has grown cold and understandably so and then the husband goes i don't know what's wrong well it's his fault and he doesn't even know it and the idea here is not what someone else owes you but what you owe someone else what you owe your spouse your husband or your wife you owe your husband or your wife god commands you to pay the debt you owe that you signed up for when you made that solemn oath to love that person until death. This does not mean um, you love her in a selfish way or to give grudgingly and be kind of a letter of the law type person. No, you are to say, I want to be a blessing. I want to serve this person. So men and women are different. And so I need to find out about my wife. A lot of women uh, and men, they, they treat each other like their own kind. You know, men think that a woman is just a man with a woman's body. And if he tries to love her in a manly way, sometimes she's, uh, she's not, she'll never be a man. She's a woman. And women, guys are guys. That's why they act the way they do. They're, they'll never act like a woman, hopefully. And so you need to find out why each other's different. The relations outside of marriage is the sin of immorality. Within marriage, it's commanded. It's holy. It's good. It's righteous. It's obedience to God. Because he commands it. God expects husbands and wives to continually pay the debt that they owe each other in this area to protect them from immorality. Solomon counsels young men in this very way in Proverbs 5, verses 15 through 19, where he says this, Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? 
Let them be yours and yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving hind and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. And this word exhilarated here means intoxicated. Really love your wife. Just be sick with it. Just be drugged with it. That's God's idea. God is not against passionate expressions of intimacy. He says, be, be intoxicated with your spouse. The problem is not with what God says. The problem is when we take something good, which God has created, and then we twist it or pervert it or use it outside of its sphere, and then we suffer for it. But that's not God's fault. I mean, drugs are good for medicine. But they're not good for pleasure seeking. Hammers are good for pounding nails, but not for smashing thumbs. You know, guns are good for sport and protection, but they're not good for murdering people in cold blood. Food is good, but gluttony is not. Rest is good, but not laziness. God has given us all these things and we can use them for good or evil. They're blessings or curses, depending on how we use them. And intimacy and marriage is a good thing. Outside of marriage, it's a bad thing. It's a wrong purpose. You know, it just comes down to this. Does God know what he's talking about or not? Does he know what he's talking about or not? I mean, does he, does, is God up there going, okay, let me see how I can put more restrictions on them to make them miserable. I mean, is that how you see God? God wants you to be happy. He wants you to be joyful. He wants you to be fulfilled. He wants you to have peace. He wants your best interest in mind. He's got your best interest in mind. He wants to save you from hell and bless you. I mean, you, you're going to believe that God knows best or are you going to follow yourself or the counsel of the world? That's where it comes down to. God's not trying to make you miserable. He wants you to freely enjoy all his gifts in their good proper time and place he knows because he's purposely made it this way that if you disobey and you take what god has made to be good and use it improperly or out of its place then you suffer consequences he does that because he loves you and he wants to protect you from yourself i mean People who engage in immorality, they're plagued with problems. They're emotionally trashed and they feel miserable and empty and hollow. And a lot of times they don't even know why. They're just lies or just mean and they keep plunging themselves into greater expressions of immorality thinking, oh, this time it will satisfy. It never does. It never does. It leads to abortion and abandoned babies and crushed hearts and broken marriages and pillaged children and sexually transmitted diseases and single parents raising children. You know, every time I read things about, oh, we need to find a cure for AIDS, there is a cure for AIDS. It's biblical morality. That is the cure. And many people continually are striving in this world to try to find a way to have their sin, but not the consequences. There are consequences to sin. Let's just say, you know, you go up, you're... You're going for a big walk and you're walking in this big neighborhood. And there's this huge piece of property, you know, that's giant. And off in the distance, you see this giant mansion. And you think, man, I'd like to go check out that house. And maybe I could knock on the door and walk through it and look inside. But there's a little picket fence there. And there's a sign that says, keep out. So you go through the fence. 
And then you walk up and then there's another fence and it says, warning, electric fence, shock hazard. And you go, hmm. So you get back and run at the fence and jump and start climbing over and it starts shocking and your hair is sticking out. And you fall on the other side and go, ah, ah. And you're kind of twitching it on that little twitch in your cheek. Man, that, that, that hurt. Whoa. Whoa. So then you keep walking towards the house and then you come to another wall with another nice wrought iron gate. And it says, beware, guard dogs. And you go through. Now, hello. The two German shepherds come out and start chewing you to pieces. Hello. You rejected the warning. You rejected the warning. You're suffering the consequences. So you go further. Hello. There is a word for that. Insane. (laughs) Mentally not right. Why would you do that to yourself? That is exactly what happens. God says, keep out of the immorality. You head forth. You begin to suffer the consequences. I'll go through the next step further. You suffer more. I'll go the next step further. You suffer more. You keep going. You end up in hell. You go through the scriptures, you're going to find so many warnings about the consequences of immorality. And you have to say, does God know what he's talking about or not? I went through Proverbs and this is what I found. Proverbs 2, 16 through 19. God says adultery causes one to suffer abandonment of having the covenant of marriage broken and leads to hell. Proverbs 5, 20 through 23 says immorality leads to being captured by the cords of one own sin and leads to death. Proverbs 6, 23 or 26 through 33 describes one who is seduced into adultery as being reduced to a loaf of bread to be consumed and forgotten. It is as smart as pouring hot coals down your shirt or walking on fire. It is to seek punishment, to seek self-destruction, to volunteer to lose one's reputation so that... It can never be blotted out. It is to put one in danger of a jealous spouse. Proverbs seven twenty one through 26 describes the immoral person as a dumb ox, which willingly walks towards the slaughter, or as a deer, which willingly walks into the hunter's ambush, or as a bird, which cluelessly hastens to the snare. Proverbs 9 verses 13 through 18 speaks of those who engage in immorality as joining with those who are on their way to hell. In Proverbs 23 verses 27 and 28, it says those who engage in immorality um, are those who fall into a deep pit or a narrow well uh, as being robbed, as being faithless. In Proverbs 26 verse 13, it says committing adultery is a sign is to sign on the dotted line that you want God to judge you. Proverbs 29.3 says immorality is a sin that causes one to waste their wealth. Proverbs 30 verse 20 says adultery leads to a seared conscience and a denial that one has done any wrong. I mean, you just need to stand back and say, what do you think would be best to do? I've got blessing, peace, joy, the glory of God and happiness here. Or all of these things I mentioned and more. And yet the whole world is taken the wrong way. They're suffering and they go the wrong way. They suffer, they go the wrong way. 
I mean, some of you like to go to the beach and why don't you, why don't, why, why don't one day have the big signs out there and there's big riptides? Why don't you go swim in the riptide? You say, well, that, that would be foolish. <laughs> why? You'd be sucked under and spit out of Catalina Island dead. You're right. And some of you like to run. So why not run on the freeway at night with black clothing? Say, <laughs> so, well, that would be dumb. You die. That's right. You know, some of you are taking powerful medications for various things. Why not take 10 times the dose? You said, he'd kill me. Think about that, though. This is what people are doing. They're, they're digesting 10 times the dose of in they're, they're digesting the fatal dose of immorality. And you know what they're saying? Well, it's not hurting me. <laughs> They're like a person who's just taken 10 times their prescription allowance. They've plowed down. You know, if you were to plow down, you just, you'd say, you know, it's not hurting me. I'm fine. I don't feel anything right now. Well, like right now you don't feel anything, but what about in 10 minutes, 20 minutes and a half hour when the, they're carrying you out on a stretcher cold. What about then or an hour? I mean, we need to realize, never confuse that a, that a stay in judgment is absence of justice. Never confuse a delay in execution as pardon. Never run towards the raging inferno and say, because I haven't felt its heat yet, it's not there. Because justice is there. Pardon will not be extended. And hellfire awaits to those who run into immorality and will not repent of it. You have to turn from it. And if you're living an immoral life, you are swimming in the riptide zone. You're running on the freeway at night. You have taken the fatal dose and you will die in this life and the one to come unless you run to the physician of your soul. Unless you run to Christ and receive his forgiveness, have his shed blood wash you clean. Unless you are born again by the Holy Spirit of God, you will not escape. You will not escape. Jesus died to save sinners and he is more than happy to save you from this if you're willing to turn from it. But you can't be facing Christ and immorality at the same time. They are in opposite directions. You cannot follow Christ and follow sin at the same time. They are in opposite directions. If you want to satisfy your physical desire, get married. There you can enjoy it to the full, receive the blessings of God, the pleasure, the happiness, everything that God intended. He wants you to do it. I mean, you just need to read the story of the Song of Solomon a little bit. And there is no doubt that God's into passionate, romantic love. I mean, he's not some killjoy here. You just got to read it a little bit and you just find out, whoa, whoa. I mean, there's some metaphors in there that are... And you husbands, you need to try this. What you need to do is you need to read through the Song of Solomon and kind of learn from Solomon how he does it. And then you need to write your wife kind of the same thing. Just replace some of his metaphors with your own. Let me just tell you a little bit about what uh, Solomon writes about the Shulamite maiden. 
He says she is as beautiful as the tents of Kedar. Now, you think, well, (laughs) so you write in yours, my love, you are as beautiful as Dodger Stadium. (laughs) Okay, there you go. As beautiful as a well-cared-for vineyard. She is like a mare among the chariots of Pharaoh. I think, I don't know if my wife likes horses that much. I'm, saying, I'm not saying you have to use the same one. That's how you might have to fix it, you know, like a snap-on line wrench or something, um, something she'd really appreciate. Shulamite's eyes are like doves deep as the pools of Heshbon. Her nose is like the Tower of Lebanon. Probably don't want to use that one. (laughs) Sounds large, doesn't it? Her hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead. Her teeth are like a flock of newly shorn Use her lips are like a scarlet thread which drip honey. Her temples are like slices of pomegranate beneath her veil. She is the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley among the thorns. Her neck is like the Tower of David. It's like, whoa, sounds large. <laughs> but Solomon was into architecture. He was into horses and he was into these things. So he said, you know what? So guys, that's what you knew, honey. Your eyes sparkle like the finest finish of an Orvis fly rod. <laughs> and I'm telling you, it will just totally slay her. You'll get huge mileage out of that. Your form, your form is beautiful like the curves of a Ferrari. I'm telling you, you just need to try it, guys. I'm telling you, it's, it works. And women, you need to do the same thing. You need to learn from the Shulamite maiden. This is how she describes Solomon. It's like his hair is like clusters of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Or like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, like a gazelle or young stag leaping on the mountains of Bether. His head is like pure gold, his hair like clusters of dates and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves besides the streams of water, his abdomen like carved ivory and his legs like pillars of alabaster so you just need to take these images and just say honey you are so strong and handsome you remind me like a KitchenAid mixer (laughs) you're as hot as my iron (laughs) you know work it you know so that's your homework if you're married and you say well You know, why does Solomon write this way? Because the Holy Spirit is inspiring him to write this way. This is the words of God. He wants married couples to enjoy this, to have passion. I mean, when you read it, it's just, it's almost like too gooey. It's just, you know, I am lovesick, I'm lovesick. You know, they're just, they're just delirious with passion and desire and love for each other. And this is what God wants in marriage. He does not... Some killjoys and whatever you do, stay sober. No, it's just stay passionate, loving, affectionate, romantic. Do you get married 
You're agreeing to fulfill a responsibility for your good, for the blessing of your spouse, for the glory of God. And if you selfishly withhold from your partner what you owe them, it's just going to drive you apart. It's going to make you miserable. You know, it's some people say, well, you know, I, I guess so. And, and then they kind of reluctantly or grudgingly follow through with what they have to do. And that is pharisaical intimacy. That's just why well, I'm going to fulfill the letter of the law, but I'm not going to do it from my heart. Well, then you're not loving your spouse and you're not loving God and you're sinning. This kind of behavior is evil. It's wicked. It's selfish. And this is why Paul didn't stop in verse 3, but went on to say what he did in verse 4. Look there, we get to our second point. Submit yourself to your spouse. In verse 4, he says, The wife does not have authority over her body, but the husband does. All the husbands say, Amen. And then the wife must willingly submit herself to her husband. But not only that, the middle of verse 4, And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. She says, Amen. Now, this is very interesting here. Both husband and wife are said not to have authority. Now, the word authority is to be over somebody, to have control of somebody. And usually we're in control of our own body. We we do what we want. We move where we want. We go where we want. We are masters of our own body. But in the area of marriage, we forego mastering our own body and we give that control over to somebody else, that dominance over to somebody else, our spouse. And so we must not be selfish in how we love. We need to be kind and respectful and reverent. It must be the joy of both husband and wife to obey God in this area and serve one another. Why? So they can be happy. So God can be glorified. You know, the golden rule must be applied. You find out what your spouse wants and you serve them, just like you would have them find out what you want and serve you. You, you talk about it. You find out, you know, that you have to realize that, that um, they're different. You're different. You all have different needs. And you find out, you talk about it, and you figure out how to love each other. A common scenario encountered in counseling couples goes something like this. At first, the husband and wife are married, and, you know, they're like Solomon and the Shulamite maiden. Over time, they settle into some routine, and the husband being, you know, male and usually having stronger desires uh, begins to not really serve his wife. She then begins to resent her husband, which makes her begin to act like Mrs. Smithers. The husband then doesn't understand what's going on here and it frustrates him to no end. And she is wishing that she would be treated with more respect, but the husband isn't asking, so he's not doing it because he's selfish. And then she becomes selfish and pretty soon they begin to drive themselves apart this then makes the husband vulnerable he goes after pornography or they both go after another person and commit adultery and the whole marriage falls apart well it's not because god's plan is broken it's because they aren't following god's plan to meet the obligations they have to one another and this is especially a problem with men who have saturated their minds with pornography because in pornography you're you're looking at images where women are being paid to act like men. A lie is being presented that this is how women are. When women are not that way, 
And so the lie then sticks in your mind as a man. And when you get married, you wonder why your wife isn't acting like a man because she's not. It's a lie. So the woman is frustrated because her husband isn't meeting her needs. And so she expects to be treated like a woman, but she's not. Because her husband is selfish, he's been deluded and polluted his mind, and so she begins to act like Mrs. Smithers, giving little, giving seldom, and above all, giving grudgingly. The husband and the wife then find themselves at this stalemate. And what needs to happen is both of them need to repent of their sins, and both of them need to obey the Scriptures, and then both of them would be fulfilled. And if they don't do that, they are ripe candidates for adultery and then divorce. And that's why Paul foresaw this. He saw this. He knew this was, he knew this would happen. You know, it's amazing that how Paul anticipates things. And he goes, you know what? There's going to be people out there and they are going to be in a place where they aren't obeying this command. They're already going to start falling apart. And what do I need to tell them? Verses five tells us stop depriving one another. Look there. Stop depriving one another. Literally stop defrauding, robbing, plundering, cheating, stealing from one another. You know, if you have buy a house or buy a car or something on credit you have to pay back if you don't you're robbing you're stealing you're cheating well the same word is used here god says you don't meet the other person's needs you're robbing stealing cheating from them think of yourself as a thief because that's how god sees you if you don't meet your partner's needs And what we need to realize is that when the Bible speaks of marriage, it speaks of marriage as a man and a woman becoming one, not only physically, but spiritually. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 19? He says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. There is a a spiritual bond. That's why they are said to be one, one in marriage. And that's why I hold divorce is never part of God's plan, because God says, What he made together, he wants to stay together. One man, one woman for life is his plan. Now you neglect your spouse, what are you doing? You're neglecting yourself. Think of it that way. I mean, if you could do this, would you ever decide to, let's say, um, refuse to have blood flow to half your body? Think, well, no, that would be bad. Yes, that would be bad for you. Or maybe when you breathe to have oxygen only flow to half of your body. Or maybe when you eat to have that nourishment only flow to half of your body. You say, well, if you could do that and you can't, why would you do that? Well, yeah, that's the whole point. Why would you harm your own self? That's what you do. When you don't follow God's prescription, you harm your own self in marriage. Calvin said this, quote, Satan has prevailed so far as to drive many to unlawful divorce and from corrupt desire for an unmarried life. The husband leaving his wife fled to the desert that he might please God better by living as a monk or the wife against her husband's will put on the veil that is became a nun and the badge of celibacy. Meanwhile, they did not consider that by violating their marriage engagement, they broke the Lord's covenant and by loosing the marriage tie, they cast off the Lord's yoke End quote. Calvin speaking of a time when a lot of people would abandon their partner to go be a monk in the desert or some nun in a nunnery breaking the covenant and casting off the Lord's yoke. In other words, rejecting the Lord as their master. 
as they go to pursue their religion. Husbands and wives, listen to me. If you work at meeting your, your spouse's needs, you're going to be fine. The goal of your life, meet your spouse's needs. You'll be fine. Now, does this mean that there's never a time when a wife or husband can deny their partner? Well, surely there are certain circumstances that get in the way. And Paul gives one such example. He says, don't deprive one another. Look at verse 5, except by agreement. Except by agreement. And here we see that there is an exception to the rule. There's got to be an agreement. Whatever the exception is, you've got to be agreed. If you aren't agreed, you can't have an exception. And not only that, if you look at verse 5 again, he says, for a time. So both need to agree, and it's only for a time, a short period of time. It can't be permanent. And if you look at the middle of verse 5, it must be for a holy purpose so that you may devote yourself to prayer. You know, maybe you're in grief. Maybe a loved one died. Maybe you're concerned about a friend. Maybe there's like some huge catastrophe in your life and you just want to pray. And so you have to have an agreement from your partner. And you ask them if you can postpone intimacy for a time and they grant you that for a time And that's fine. That's what Paul is talking about. I want you to take a note here about something that is very fascinating that kind of just struck me as I was studying this. God, we know God tells us to pray, to pray without ceasing and everything by prayer, to boldly approach the throne of grace. There's a constant exhortation to always be in prayer. And God wants us to come before him, to beseech him, to approach him in prayer. But get this, God Almighty is willing to submit himself to us, to couples, why they have an agreement here. God is saying, though prayer is important, this is more important. We often think of this thing as like a fleshly thing and prayer is a spiritual thing, but no. Intimacy is a spiritual thing and prayer is a spiritual thing. But intimacy is a higher priority. And God says, if you don't have mutual agreement, intimacy, not prayer. Think about that. I mean, that tells you how holy God considers this. Why would God put something that at first thought seems so fleshly to such a high state of priority? Well, if you look at the end of verse five, we find out and then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. That's why to prevent what? immorality god wants you to be so holy and pure he says i'm giving you priority over prayer this takes priority over prayer just so that you don't fall into immorality i don't want you to fall into immorality no immorality god wants you to be blessed to be happy to be fulfilled to be satisfied he gives us these desires and says enjoy them in marriage enjoy them freely Fulfill your duty. Don't deprive one another. Give to each other what is due and do it willingly and for the Lord and for the blessing of others and the glory of God. And that's good. That's so good. I want you to turn over to Song of Solomon. If you're wondering where that is. It's uh, past Proverbs a little bit. You'll run into it. Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, chapter 8, the last chapter. I want you to just see probably, 
you know, if you ever have anybody say, well, I don't know if God's for this or not. This text here is, this is the pinnacle text. This is probably the most expressive, picturesque text about how God feels about the intimacy between a husband and a wife and marriage and just the degree to which um, it can be enjoyed with his full agreement, purpose, and pleasure. Verse 6, the Shulamite maiden tells us, tells Solomon here, put me like a seal over your heart. So just think about that. Your heart to them was your emotions, your intellect, your will, your thoughts. I want to be on your heart. I want to be on your mind. I want you to be consumed with thoughts about me. Put me like a seal on your heart. Not only that, like a seal on your arm. An arm is whatever is like the instrument you do all your things with. And so I want you to be thinking about me. And whenever you do, I want you to be consumed about me. Thinking about me. For love, and we're talking about physical, passionate, romantic love here, is as strong as death. Now, death is pretty strong. When somebody dies, it's hard to get out of that situation. Okay? So we're talking about a strength here of passion that is like death. Jealousy is as severe as Sheol that both people understand their right, their duty to have their partner and their partner alone in the marriage relationship. And it's like jealousy is severe as Sheol. We're talking about ultimate strength here. Its flashes are like the flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Now, I don't know what that means, but... That's intense. You know, since God can basically melt the whole universe, we're talking about some intensity here. The very flame of the Lord. And you say, well, just how passionate can it be? Well, many waters cannot quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. You you can't drown it. You can't smother it. It burns underwater. And not only that, in line with the great prophets, the Beatles... If a man were to give all the riches of his house for love, it would be utterly despised. You can't buy love. You can't make somebody love you this way with money. You can't pay for it. And if you pursue immorality, you will never know this. God wants you to know this. He wants you to experience this. In your marriage, he wants you to have the full blessing and intensity of what he's talking about here. But if you go outside the means or even within marriage, you don't fulfill what God tells you to do. You'll never have this blessing. You'll cheat yourself of this blessing. And when you have this blessing, it makes you so thankful, constantly praising God that you'll be So thankful and praising him that if you don't do it this way, you'll steal God his praise and steal God his glory because God knows what's best. So that's the positive side. God is all for intimacy within its place and its time and just to a radical degree of silly passion and lovesickness to the point of intoxication. So. That's it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you 
for your word. And we thank you that you have given us instruction that we can see your purpose and your perfect plan for marriage. Father, I pray for each person who is married here as they look at this and say, well, that's not what I'm experiencing. Well, then may you give them the motivation to begin to pursue the kind of way they need to love their spouse so that you can be honored, so they can be blessed, so you can receive the praise, so they can experience what we just read in the text. For those who are single, I pray that you would give them contentment and peace and the grace to live a holy and pure life. For those with the gift of singleness, we just praise you that Not all need to be married, but for those who feel they do have the need, may you, by your providence, bring that right person into their life at the right time. And may they then begin to experience the great blessings and joy you have for them in this sphere. Father, I just pray that Calvary Bible Church would be a holy church. I pray that you would help all of us to pursue holiness in our relationships. Father, I pray that... If there are people here who don't know you, maybe people here who have fallen into immorality and they're wondering if you know what's best, may you convince them that you know what's best. May they repent of their sin. May they turn to purity purity and holiness and following Christ. For those who are in marriage, who are struggling right now, who have not submitted, may they be broken because of their own sin, not thinking of their spouse's their own sin. May you humble them because of their own sin. May you give them resolve to obey you regardless. And then as a consequence of that, may you give them joy and peace and happiness because that is your plan for marriage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.